Do your career goals require you to take a standardized test, like the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, MCAT, or SAT? Magoosh Online Test Prep provides you with the tools you need to get a great score, like study schedules, up-to-date practice questions, video lessons, and support from expert tutors. Study anywhere, anytime, on desktop or mobile. Visit Magoosh, M-A-G-O-O-S-H, dot com, and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 15% off discount. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the conclusion to our Faust story, where you'll see how you can crash weddings in style with your Doctor Strange cloak, have an I-can-show-you-the-world moment with a demon, and pluck off limbs to pay your debts, all for the low, low price of your soul. The creatures this week are horrifying flying snakes with terrible childhoods. This is Myths and Legends, episode 151b, The Bad Place. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, a guy named Faust made a deal with the devil through a middle demon known as Mephistopheles. In it, he would get basically anything he wanted in addition to what were essentially magical powers for 24 years, after which he would die and go to hell. Some light hijinks ensued last week, but get ready to ramp up the craziness because this thing really goes off the rails. All right, let's jump into Faust and Mephistopheles really just having a wonderful night. This is really nice, Faust said, turning to Mephistopheles, as the pair cruised Medea style in a dragon-led chariot. Way better than last time. Last time, of course, had been after Faust boldly asked Mephistopheles to see the depths of hell itself. Mephistopheles, for one, wasn't really thrilled about the existential angst Faust would inevitably experience after previewing his final destination for all eternity. But an agreement was an agreement, and they aborted the chariot. The trip to hell had been a horrifying near miss, considering Mephistopheles accidentally dropped Faust, finding him later at the bottom, passed out next to the lake of fire. Quickly, Mephistopheles had worked a little bit of magic on the professor, and he'd come to, thinking it all might have been a dream. By now, they were having a clear, I can show you the world moment, 47 miles above the earth. The key to keeping Faust on the hook was not only giving him everything he wanted, but everything he didn't know he wanted. And, looking down at the known world with wonder, Mephistopheles smiled. Any existential angst would be gone for years after this. And truly, when Faust returned, he slept like a baby for three days straight. He was no longer plagued by visions of the lake of fire, but enchanted by the memories of flying through space and viewing the earth at a distance, little more than a speck on the horizon. This was around year 16 of their little agreement. It was Friday night again, and Faust was sitting around, bored. He summoned Mephistopheles and asked the demon if they could go somewhere. The demon looked at his watch. You have me for the next eight years. As always, the answer is yes. Where do you want to go? Faust thought about it. Rome. Oh, no, no, no. The Vatican. Yeah, the Vatican. Let's mess some stuff up. He was dancing back and forth. With a shrug, Mephistopheles waved a hand, and in a mere second, 
there they were, both standing next to the Pope and friends as they enjoyed a meal together. Now, this was written in Germany, right in the middle of the Reformation. So the depictions of Catholicism are less than charitable. In the story, Pope and co are feasting, and the Vatican is rife with drunkenness and debauchery. At the sight of the party, Faust turned to the devil, commenting that he should have asked him to make him a pope instead. Mephistopheles furrowed his brow. That wasn't a remote possibility. And seriously, whatever Faust wanted to do, he should do, because this whole place gave Mephistopheles the willies. Grinning, Faust asked if he still had telekinesis-style superpowers. Mephistopheles cocked an eyebrow. Uh, sure, yeah. At the very least, he did now. So, Faust went to work. Whenever the Pope was about to take a bite of food, he'd get a mouthful of Faust's unfresh breath. Faust heckled at the Pope, making him think it was his friends who were laughing at him. And when Faust was a little bit hungry, he raised his hands and all the platters flew to him. In a second, they were back in Faust's home, and Faust ate everyone's dinner, keeping the silverware. One appetite satiated, and one major religion offended, Faust moved on to the next. He went to Constantinople and began setting fires around the palace of the Turkish emperor. Amid the smoke, he appeared in the form of the prophet Muhammad, striking the emperor with awe. He disappeared and reappeared among the emperor's wives. They, too, were in awe, and they showed their awe, one to six times each. Yeah. I like to think that, when they got back to Germany, Mephistopheles maybe wondered if he was doing his job of corrupting Faust too well. This was a big day for Faust. He had been summoned to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and it wasn't through any trick or demon magic. Well, okay, well, pretty much everything in Faust's life is through a trick or demon magic, but this wasn't through it directly. Due to his constant questioning of Mephistopheles, Faust had amassed a giant body of knowledge, and he put this knowledge to work, rising to the top of every scientific discipline he could. Eventually, this earned him the attention of the emperor. Soon, Dr. Faust and his invisible friend Mephistopheles were standing before the Holy Roman Emperor, and they were actually in the emperor's private chamber, because the emperor had something to ask. He turned to the respectful and quiet Faust, and said that he, uh, he had heard some, some things. Faust's eyes widened, and he scanned the room, looking at all the emperor's heavily armed and armored knights. Would he have enough time to get himself to safety before any one of those crossbow bolts ended his 24 years early? The emperor continued. There have been a lot of words thrown around about Dr. Faust. Magician was one. Necromancer was another. The emperor could see Faust's eyes widening, but smiled and rested his hand on the doctor's shoulder. Relax, he wasn't here to do any of the normal things they would do to witches and necromancers. He wasn't judging. Faust swallowed hard and breathed for the first time in a minute. All right, so if Emperor Charlie V wasn't judging, what was the point of the privacy and, you know, this whole conversation? The emperor bit his lip. Cool stuff? He wanted to see cool stuff. In the end, they settled on something, summoning the spirit of Alexander the Great to compliment him and offer leadership advice. They also summoned the spirit of his lover, 
and the holy and the holy Roman emperor chatted with the pair into the evening. When time came for dinner, and the guests suspiciously evaporated into a mist that smelled faintly of brimstone, Faust walked alongside the emperor as his honored guest for a late dinner, and they passed a sleepy night. The emperor sneered, but seeing a chance to curry favor, Faust snickered and whispered something to the portly friar that no one but him could see. The knight started shrieking as his helmet warped and expanded, and two antlers exploded out of the metal. The emperor clapped and Faust laughed, and the knight just stood there, screaming, because he now had antlers. As the party passed, Faust whispered to Mephistopheles, and the antlers evaporated. Later on that year, Faust was approached with a request. His reputation was growing, such that his students were now talking of his rumored power. Apparently, there was a duke's wedding in Munich that they would love to go to and be back in one night. So they scraped together some money and approached Faust, who was so tickled that they thought of him that he said, yeah, he would help them crash a wedding. Now, I was joking earlier, but Faust and the three students did have a quite literal I can show you the world moment because when the students showed up arrayed in their finest attire, Faust took them to the courtyard of his now expansive house and lay down a cloak, telling them to get on. Once aboard, they soared all the way to Munich, invisibly, of course, on a flying cloak. Now, while they flew, Faust explained the rules. He was going to talk their way into the party, but inside, no one should mention anything about how they got there. In fact, the students weren't allowed to talk at all, if things started to go south, all they had to do was find Faust and grab onto his cloak while he yelled, up and away. All the passengers nodded, eyes wide. They flew together down to the party, where they were offered hand-washing water and everything. On account of the people at the doorway to the party, assuming that, since they had made it past the gate, they must rightfully be able to be there. Around drink two, Faust was the first to start to notice the sideways glances from the Duke himself. It was then that he heard laughing and someone talking about him. One of the students had gone against the one order he was given, and had started speaking openly at the party. Him? Oh, he was just a student in Wittenberg. He was here with the doctor. The Duke's eyes widened, and Faust knew that they had overstayed their non-existent welcome. He uttered the cry of, up and away, and the two students who were paying attention rushed and grabbed the cloak. Faust leapt and turned invisible, and the two students watched, as the eyes of the third moved from confused to panicked as the, as the Duke's guards collared him. It was a silent flight back to Wittenberg. When they arrived back at Faust's house, the students begged him to go back for the third. They couldn't leave him, and so, despite Faust's protest that the student didn't listen, he finally relented. He told the students they should go home. Their friend will be back in the dorms tomorrow. The third student though he wasn't smart enough to keep his mouth shut at the party, was smart enough to keep his mouth shut when he was before the Duke's guards. They demanded to know who he was, what he was doing there, and how his friends had disappeared. If he didn't, he would be taken to the dungeon the next morning and tortured until he talked. In the shadows, he made up his mind that if Faust didn't come for him that night, then Faust wasn't going to come for him, and he should talk. Before that, however, he'd keep his mouth shut and not inform on the necromancer, you know, like he was supposed to do from the very beginning. That night, as the guards outside his cell nodded off, a Doctor Strange-style portal opened behind him, from which the arm of an aging academic emerged and yanked him through. The student landed in his own bed, and he and his friends 
never went back to see Dr. Faust again. somehow get more crazy for Faust, but that will be right after this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, Dr. Faust had his income, but only the income we talked about last week. It was a lot, but lifestyle inflation and a taste for the finer things led Faust to a place of needing to borrow more. He did so, but when the loan sharks came by, Faust objected. They were taking him for all he was worth. The interest was an arm and a leg. So how about he make a deal? He would give the lender his leg to buy a few more weeks. Maybe the lender wanted to see just what would happen. So he accepted the leg as collateral until the debt was paid. Faust popped off his leg, handed it to the lender, and shut the door. On his way home, the lender came to his senses and wondered what he was going to do with the leg that would surely be stinking within a week. He tossed the leg into the river and went home. Later, when he went to follow up with Faust, Faust proudly announced that he had the money. He didn't, but uh, where was his leg? The lender said he threw it in the river, seeing as one solitary human leg wasn't good for anyone. Faust objected, that wasn't how collateral worked. Also, his leg was good for him. He demanded the lender make good on his lost collateral. And as such, he had his debts canceled. As soon as the door shut, the doctor grinned. A portly friar hobbled from the shadows just as the new leg began to appear. At this point, Faust's life gets pretty episodic. He helps out a pregnant countess by giving her grapes in the winter and explains how seasons work for a count. The noble, I guess not wondering how Faust went to the other hemisphere to fetch grapes. On another trip, he and a few students had transported themselves to the cellar of a nobleman to check out his wine collection. And when the butler found them, Faust jumped on the butler's back and rode the poor guy through the air before getting tired of the whole thing and leaving him in a tree where he almost froze to death in midwinter. At another point, we find the same group of students partying with Faust at his manor when the conversation turns to the topic of beautiful women. Specifically, Helen of Troy. She must have been beautiful, given, you know, all the people who died to either keep her or get her back. With a wink, Faust says, he'll see what he can do. Well, after a talk in his apparently empty office, Faust emerges with the spirit of Helen of Troy, and the young men grow silent. The next day, they all beg Faust to do it again. They have a painter buddy who can paint her, and then reproduce that painting, and but Faust raises a hand. He's beat them to it. And he distributes paintings to all the young men, who, for several nights, apparently couldn't sleep because they were thinking of Helen. There's also a time when Faust visits a carnival in Frankfurt and learns of four more sorcerers who are putting on a show where they cut off each other's heads 
and then send them to the barber for a haircut before putting them back on. Well, Faust becomes furious because, as the original 1500s chapbook said, he thought he was the only, quote, cock in the devil's basket, which, you know, phrasing. It turned out that the sorcerers had a magical flower that they used to heal the one who had his head cut off. And after Mephistopheles pointed that out, and Faust snipped the last of the flowers when they weren't looking, the magic show quickly turned tragic when one guy wasn't waking up and the other was arrested for murder. It would seem that Faust was and remained the only cock in the devil's basket. There was one instance where Faust had to renew his vows, so to speak. There was an old man, a Christian from whom Faust could not hide. Faust didn't know how he knew, but the kind old man pointed out that Faust had given himself up to the devil, and not in a figurative sense either. He'd signed away his soul. It was obvious that the contract was a sham. Faust could get out of it at any moment. God still wanted him back, even with all he had done. He needed only to repent and turn to God, and all this could end. Slowly, Faust rose from the table and asked the man to leave his home. The old man could only smile. He thanked Faust for hearing what the doctor needed to hear, and he left the doctor's home without resistance. All was still, but when Faust returned to the table, he didn't keep eating. He only stared at his food. It was then that he heard the portly friar behind him. He looked up as the chair scraped the floor, and the friar, whose eyes flashed red, asked what Faust was thinking about. Was it about what the old man had said? Mephistopheles hoped it wasn't, because Faust had sworn enmity against God and his ways. If Faust was feeling otherwise, the contract was in breach, and Mephistopheles was to take Faust right away. Faust had been there before, he reminded. It wasn't a dream. He didn't really want to go back, did he? The doctor laughed. He wasn't thinking of turning to God. He knew what he agreed to. No need to worry about him. Oh, I know, replied the demon. He said they were watching, always watching, but he felt he needed a little more assurance from Faust. After all, there were still five years left on the contract. Couldn't have him getting cold feet now. And so it was that Faust now sat before a second contract, reiterating the first. And as he signed again in his blood, he realized now how much he hated the old man. and He wished the old Christian man to be punished. Mephistopheles smiled and disappeared in a flash. It was that night that Mephistopheles visited the elderly man, waking him with a start. His home shook, a loud grunting and bellowing, like an old sow pierced the air. It doesn't say what spirit Mephistopheles made, but with the grunting and mooing and general terribleness, I like to think it was the ghastly visage of the Minotaur that appeared that night. It barreled around, crashing into things and making threats, but the old man didn't scream or plead. He prayed. Mephistopheles began to tremble as the Minotaur bellowed and screamed, collapsing before evaporating into dust. Mephistopheles tried to stay in the room, tried to summon another monster, but he found that he could not. He was powerless. Furthermore, he burned. Just staying in the old man's room caused him intense, searing pain. 
he glared at the old man, who continued praying, and Mephistopheles fled into the night. As we learned last week, Dr. Faust couldn't marry, but there did come a time, around year 17 or so, where he entered into a committed relationship, of sorts. You see, like his former students, Dr. Faust couldn't get Helen of Troy out of his head, but unlike the students, Dr. Faust could actually do something about it. He told Mephistopheles that instead of any random woman each night, he wanted Helen, and only Helen, forever. And he was happy playing house with a demon, pretending to be Helen of Troy. I'm not sure how exactly this happened, and I'm pretty sure I don't want to know, but Helen became pregnant and gave birth to a son, whom Faust named Justus Faustus. Given that he was keeping Helen a secret, no one knew of the child. No one, that is, except Christoph Wagner. Now, the story retcons things a bit here, because Wagner was supposed to have been there the entire time. Apparently, Faust had decided early on that he needed an earthly assistant. Instead of hiring someone in town or recruiting a student with some noble family, the doctor began walking the streets. He had been keeping an eye on a beggar and eventually approached Wagner about having dinner together. At dinner, Faust learned that Wagner's own family had either disowned him or died, and he had been living on the streets for nearly five years. Smiling, that was all Faust needed to know. Wagner was hired. It was a perk that Wagner was as intelligent as he was desperate, but Faust only cared about the latter. He wanted someone who depended on him wholly for his livelihood. He didn't anticipate Wagner finding out about Mephistopheles and the bargain, but Faust's reputation as a sorcerer and a necromancer was growing, despite his intense secrecy, so Faust needed someone he could trust, someone loyal, and in return, he gave Wagner an easy position with high pay. Wagner didn't know what went on in Faust's office, and he was the first to tell you that he didn't want to know. Fiercely and publicly, he defended the doctor against any charges, insisting that he was nothing more than what he appeared to be. As such, with three months to go on the contract, it was Christoph Wagner who was called into a room where he saw Faust sitting with a few magistrates. Faust told the servant to sit down. Today, he was no longer a servant. Today, he was a son. Faust explained to the magistrates that Wagner was to be his heir, and he inherited the house, library, and, looking at Wagner, his office as well. Wagner swallowed hard. The, the magistrates pointed out that, while there seemed to be some ominous portent in Faust's voice, the office was part of the house, so that wouldn't be considered a separate item, just so you're all on the same page. Okay, moving on. When the contract was complete, signed by all parties, and the magistrates had left, Faust called to Wagner. His voice trickled down the hall from the center of the house, from his office. Wagner hesitated before opening the door, but Faust's commanding voice urged him inside without delay. The doctor's inner office was a large room with walls of books. It was an impressive sight, and standing in the center stood Faust, surrounded by three circles that he had drawn nearly 24 years prior. Faust looked at his assistant. He'd done a lot for Wagner. He brought the guy in from the cold, giving him a job, a future, and a house. He had also taught Wagner to read, and now he was going to give the man the world. There was something he wanted to show Wagner. Faust stepped from the circles and nodded. In a flash, 
the portly friar appeared before the pair. Wagner didn't gasp. This was no surprise. With his master's reputation as a necromancer and all the voices from the back room, he knew something was going on all along. Demon? Wagner asked. Mephistopheles nodded. When I go, he goes, Faust explained. But there could be another. If Wagner read the books of the library and made his own agreement, of course. Wagner nodded in understanding. He would need some time to think on this, but could return tomorrow with an answer. As promised, Wagner returned the next day. He had been living as a direct beneficiary of Faust's power for some time, and figured heaven was already out of the question after the life he'd lived up to this point, so he accepted. What form do you want your servant to take? The doctor asked. Faust had chosen a friar from Mephistopheles as a joke, you know, because Wagner pursed his lips and nodded. No, yeah, no, he got it. And yeah, the best jokes were the ones you had to explain. No, he would go in a different direction. Ape Butler. Instantly, a respectful and solemn ape dressed conservatively in the fashion of the time came in, and he bowed before Wagner, the man who would be his new master. Faust nodded, and the ape disappeared in a puff of brimstone. The whole point of the friar was discretion, but yeah, an ape butler could be fun, he guessed. Oh, discretion like flying from a duke's wedding you crashed like Dr. Strange? Wagner rejoined. He got out from time to time, and he heard things. Fair enough, Faust said, and informed Wagner that his demon, named Urian, would obey him only after Faust's own death. <laughs> Faust was the only cock in the devil's basket, as the common saying went. Is it a common saying, though? Wagner asked, before being promptly dismissed from his master's presence. Now, imagine you know you're going to die in a month. And you also know that there is, in fact, a hell that you visited, and you know for yet another fact, that you will spend the rest of forever there. Feeling great? Probably not. So you can imagine how Faust, coming to grips with his eternal future being just 30 days out, grew increasingly detached, despondent, and depressed. As the days ticked down, he lost all of his appetites and remained in his room, some days barely even managing to rise from bed. He didn't pray. He didn't curse. He only despaired. Then, with just one day left, Mephistopheles saw that he must say something. He materialized at the foot of Faust's bed, watching him as he lay there, staring at the ceiling, as he had been doing for weeks. It won't be all bad, the demon ventured. At least Faust had the steel skin. Faust set up. The, the what? Mephistopheles nodded. Oh yeah, Faust was better off than like 99% of the people who would be in hell because part of the deal was that the devil would give him skin of steel, so that he wouldn't feel the fire, the flames, or the pain. But did Faust not know that? Did he not read the fine print? Faust scooted to the edge of the bed. Did Mephistopheles mean to say that that hell wouldn't be that bad? What about all that stuff that he had told Faust in the beginning, about how hell was just profoundly terrible? Mephistopheles laughed. Of course he had to say that. It was part of the test to see if Faust really wanted to make the deal. It wouldn't be bad, and furthermore, I mean, Mephistopheles, 
after spending two and a half decades with Faust, hoped that he could call the doctor not just master, but friend. Faust smiled. Of course. Of course Mephistopheles could. The demon patted Faust in the foot. Good then. Well, Faust still had 24 hours before the journey to the great beyond. Party time? Renewed by the assurances of the demon that definitely wasn't trying to keep Faust from a deathbed repentance, Faust snapped a finger. In the blink of an eye, the doctor found himself washed and clothed in the most expensive fabrics he could summon, with invitations flying out to everyone who was anyone in all of Wittenberg for Faust's best and final party. As the doctor raised his glass and looked around to the assembled noblemen, magistrates, professors, and students, he began the announcement. There was no hiding his reputation of being not just an alchemist, but a sorcerer. A necromancer, if you will. The room laughed. Faust laughed too. Well, it was true. He was a necromancer, a sorcerer, and worse. Long ago, he had traded his soul to the devil for 24 years of power and wealth. And on this night, it was time to pay up. This was the night he would die and go to hell. The laughter began to die down in the room, but what had the doctor just said? He continued, telling everyone of the deal he had made, how he signed with his blood and went on to use his powers to crash weddings, hassle the Pope, and the women, yeah. It was a wild ride, but now it was ending. No matter what they heard tonight, they shouldn't despair, he instructed. A cluster of students grew agitated. This was a serious and bad thing. Why was he so calm? Why was he not crying out to God constantly for his soul? And here's where something happens that isn't really in line with the established theology of the story, because Faust, finally racked with terror, sees through the lies told by Mephistopheles and tries to cry out to God in repentance, but finds that the words stick in his mouth. It says that he's unable to do so because of the agreement he made all those years ago. The doctor, it seems, is truly and utterly lost. But what about the angels and the old Christian man who came to Faust, telling him that repentance was still an option? What about Mephistopheles appearing to comfort him just to keep him on the line? Why would they do any of that if repentance wasn't a real option? I prefer to think that instead of Faust attempting reconciliation with God and not being allowed, the doctor laughs off his students' cries with assurances that he'd be fine. And so it was, Later on that night, at 1 a.m., that Faust stood in his office at the place where he had summoned Mephistopheles and signed the pact 24 years ago, almost to the hour. In a puff of smoke, the portly friar appeared. With a deep breath, he watched the clock on the wall count down, and then he smiled. My friend, thank you for your service for all these years, and, as we are together for many more, my last request is that you make the moment of my passing peaceful, Faust asked with a serene smile on his face. Oh, Faust. No. Oh, oh, it felt good to say that. You see, your ability to ask anything of me ended about 45 seconds ago. The friar's skin began to burn away, revealing the nightmarish visage that had lurked inside for the last two and a half decades. Mephistopheles, the true Mephistopheles, sauntered over and laid one finger on Faust's arm. Immediately, the doctor's skin began to split, 
as pain radiated through his body. His screams were matched by the wind. The wind that carried the serpents. Oh, and Faust? We were never friends, was the last thing the doctor heard before the door burst open and serpents slithered in to consume him from the inside out. Faust's house lay desolate after that. Maybe it was because he had used it to commune with demons for 24 years. Maybe it was also that, of Faust, only his teeth, eyes, and brain were found in the office. They found the rest of him later on that day, in pieces, on top of the city's dung heap. The chapbook assures us that this was the history written right after Faust's death, so we can be sure of its veracity. It should come as no surprise that Helen of Troy and Justice Faustus disappeared that day as well, seeing as they were just demons who likely really needed a vacation after the last few years. It's said that the ghost of Faust wanders his house, wailing, and of course, the point of the story is telling people to fear God, flee sorcery, conjuration, and other works of the devil, and hey, maybe don't invite demons into your home, and then make deals with them. I've referenced turned out to be extremely popular and was turned into a play roughly 30 years after its circulation, telling the story in a more dramatic sense. In a sense, I guess that's what we did today, but in mainstream media. The play was also adapted a few hundred years after the debut into the work of literature by Goethe, which, as I said last week, is one of the greatest and most respected works of German literature. Also, if you're wondering if Faust was truly doomed from the moment he signed, my personal belief is that Mephistopheles was running a 24-year con on him, and the agreement was only a sham to make him think he was doomed. That's why I glossed over the deathbed repentance in the last part. It didn't seem to fit with the story as it was written. I just felt like the writer of the chapbook didn't want Faust to have his gross cake and eat it too. And of course, this story, thanks to its famous adaptations, became extremely well-known and continues to be adapted and parodied to this day. It's also the origin of the phrase, Faustian bargain, or Faustian pact, where a person knowingly trades their principles to a corrupting individual for knowledge or power. Next week, we're back in the Arthurian legends at last, and this time, it's the story of Arthur and his buddies fighting the Roman Empire, giants, and Yvain's desire to kill anyone who makes him even slightly angry. If you'd like to support the show, beyond telling a friend or leaving a review, there's also a membership thing on the site. For way less than the price of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich of the month club, which at $40 a month is $35 more than the membership, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that aren't a PB&J you can make at home with a 2,000% markup. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Ophis Pteritos from the folklore of the Mediterranean. So, like Indiana Jones, I hate snakes. I really do. Really, the only thing worse than a snake is, well, the Ophis pteritos, which is just a super aggressive snake with wings. It's said that the Ophis pteritos is a small snake, though I'm not sure if that's mythological creature small or just regular snake small, because it's said that they will swarm and attack people for trying to extract myrrh from trees. 
and the only way to get the myrrh is to burn storax and smoke them out like a hive of even more terrifying bees. I wonder about the size, because a bunch of winged gardener snakes is an annoyance, while a bunch of winged serpents is nightmare fuel. The creatures have a tragic childhood, because from the moment they're born, they're orphans. See, you see, when a mommy Orphes pteratos and a daddy Orphes pteratos love each other very much, they think of ways to express their love. And then mommy Orphes pteratos bites into daddy's neck immediately after and doesn't stop chewing until there isn't any neck left. Then things somehow get darker because the babies, full of indignation about what happened to dad, are in mommy snake's belly until they decide to go all xenomorph and find a way out of mom by the same way mom got rid of dad. It seems like this thirst for vengeance is part of the Orpheus Pteratos design, too, because the mom isn't even built with an exit for the children, so the rage over dad is almost a necessity, and the brutal, bloody circle of life goes on. With all this, maybe it's not hard to see how, with life beginning and ending in such a traumatic fashion, it's easy to see why the Orpheus Pteratos are just so angry. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And... Anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com legends and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with the counselor you'll love today. All right, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>